Hello everyone, and welcome to Inside the Mind of Sport. In today's episode, an unusual tribute to Diego Maradona, how other F1 drivers dealt with a horrific crash, and why I hope that female kicker Sarah Fuller can continue the season. Now, let's dive inside the mind of sport. Last week, Argentinian soccer superstar Diego Maradona died at the age of 60. For many, he is regarded as the best player in the world and the best player to have ever played the game. He led the Argentinian national squad to a World Cup victory in 1986 and Italian side Napoli to their first two and to date only national championships. But for me, Maradona was only ever a benchmark. Although I've seen some of his matches, I never saw him play live. And that might possibly change my perspective on the person and the player that Maradona was. What I saw was a Maradona after his career. And after his career, there's no other way to say that he looked like a very sad and tormented person. He looked like somebody who did not have the skills and ability to deal with the level of success he achieved during his career. And to me it always looked like nobody around him was there to properly guide him or to help them. And although his death is a moment to remember his greatness on the pitch, and there were many great moments. Maybe his most memorable game was against England in the World Cup in 1986, where first he scores with the infamous hand of God, basically scoring with his hand rather than his head, and after that scoring his second goal, which has been labeled as the greatest goal of the century, in which he simply says to the English team, I know you're on the pitch, but I don't care. I'm going to go around you and score. But I also think we all owe it to Diego to ask some critical questions about how we value and interact with talent and greatness. Maradona grew up poor in Buenos Aires and his only way out of there was with the ball. He worked tremendously hard for that and as we all know now, he succeeded gloriously. But that was all he had. All he had was the ball. He didn't possess any of the other skills you need to have a long successful career and life after your career. Time management, nutrition knowledge, knowing how to control your impulses, knowing how to transition after your professional career. He didn't have anyone to really help him with this. And as a result, he had a lot of problems with drugs, alcohol, uh, food, but also other things like making bad life decisions and bad financial decisions. And how can you blame somebody who had nothing for most of his life and came from nothing and suddenly has everything? How can you blame that person for taking everything? I really don't blame Maradona for his behavior. I think it makes perfect sense if you know where he comes from. But it does raise a question. Does being amazing at one thing mean that we, as a society, should just take everything else for granted? 
and just accept everything else somebody does? We often talk about sport as a way for young children to learn important skills that they're going to need throughout their lives. They will learn how to cope with stress and anxiety. They will learn discipline. They will learn teamwork. They will learn how to deal with disappointment. All these things are things that we tell parents when they bring their kid to sport for the first time. But very often when sport encounters somebody that is so much better than anyone else, that has so much more talent than anyone else, we suddenly forget about all these things and let them do whatever they want. There are examples of this all in sports. And maybe the most famous one is Mike Tyson, who was perfectly trained and groomed to be an amazing boxer, but nothing else. And he struggled a lot later in his life. When an athlete has that much talent, suddenly everyone simply overlooks the bad stuff and the bad behavior that normally wouldn't be accepted in somebody with less talent. People are suddenly blinded by the success and for the athlete that can lead to worse situations if they do not learn the same skills as everyone else did. I'm not 100% sure why this is happening. Maybe people are scared that if you try to adjust the bad behavior of a talented athlete that talent will just simply leave or maybe it's because deep down we like the story of the talented but tormented mind. All I know is that we should really consider whether this behavior is the best thing to do for people like Maradona. In the end, Maradona is like the opposite of a politician. For him, it didn't matter how many bad things he did, how many bad decisions he made, because he did one thing really well. With politicians, it doesn't matter how many good things you do. If you make one mistake, you're done for. With his death, we should be reminded that talent shouldn't be a get-out-of-jail-free card to live a destructive life for yourself and others. Let's take this sad moment to replay those goals and talk about those achievements, to talk about the best player that has ever played the game. But also, take this moment to reflect and ask ourselves whether we want to change the way we approach extraordinary talent. The second story today comes from the world of Formula One, where on Sunday, on the first lap of the 2020 Formula One Bahrain Grand Prix, French F1 driver Roman Grosjean got in one of the biggest accidents the sport has seen in almost two decades. While halfway down the straight on this opening lap, the rear right wheel of his Haas F1 car clipped the front left wheel of the car of Russian Daniel Kvyat, sending him sideways into the barrier at almost 200 kilometers an hour. Upon impact, the car broke in half. The front half, with the driver in it, pierced through a barrier while the back half of the car stayed on the track. The fuel tank, situated in the middle of the car, ruptured and exploded instantaneously, indulging the entire crash site in massive flames. After a few tense moments, and with the emergency response teams at the site almost immediately, the cameras showed Grosjean emerging from the flames, jumping over the destroyed barrier and to safety. In the end, the Frenchman merely suffered minor burns on his hands and feet, 
and is doing overall well. If you've seen the crash, you probably expected a worse outcome, which is a great testament to the incredible safety features on a modern F1 car. However, this day reminded everyone involved in the sport of the dangers associated with, something that was maybe forgotten or pushed to the back due to the relative safe period the sport has experienced in the last few years. In these kinds of moments, in every extreme sport, the same question is always asked. As a competitor, how do you refocus after a moment like that, when you have just seen the risks you are taking by participating in this sport? This is a separate question from why people would participate in extreme sports in the first place. And if you are interested in that, you can check out a YouTube video I made some time ago on my YouTube channel, JWK Mental Performance Training. I'll also put the link to that video in the show notes below. Now, imagine being one of the other Formula One drivers, and you just saw what your colleague went through. You saw what could happen to you. Or imagine you are a downhill skier, and you just saw somebody being airlifted off the slope with a shattered leg. How do you regain your focus and determination to not only participate in the sport, but also perform at your highest level? There's several strategies an athlete could employ in that moment to try and achieve this, to try and be as effective as possible in what is undoubtedly a really difficult situation. The first strategy is called positive reframing, or in other words, pointing out the positive things that come from engaging in the sport. Particular to F1, think about things like the financial reward, the status, the enjoyment, the kick or adrenaline you get, and maybe the achievement you can achieve by participating in the sport. These athletes in this sport can make a lot of money and become superstars or famous doing what they do. On top of that, I can imagine that it is very thrilling to be in a car that can go this fast uh, down a track. In the same weekend, there was actually a discussion about the salaries in F1, with certain officials saying that they were way too high. Now, you could argue this because the highest earning F1 driver, Lewis Hamilton, makes over $40 million every year. But towards the back of the grid, those numbers are way lower with the lowest paid driver, Antonio Giovinazzi, making a small $500,000. Now, you probably say, well, $500,000 is a lot of money. But if you think about positive reframing, there has to be a point at which the financial reward isn't high enough for these athletes to take the risk. And I don't think that a payment cut from $40 million to $20 million is going to make the difference for Lewis Hamilton. But there is a point to make in that the salaries are actually important in terms of a coping mechanism for these athletes in these particular moments. Now, the second strategy that athletes can employ to help deal with this current situation is what we call instrumental support, which is seeking support from others to help cope with the threat. And if one, there's actually a really clear example of instrumental support. You see, most drivers have a trainer. This trainer helps them prepare physically for the task at hand. 
But it's not only that. For most drivers, their trainer has been with them since they were much younger and has come up the different formulas and the different ranks to F1 with them. The trainer is not only there to prepare them physically, but it's almost like a friend, somebody you trust and you can really rely on uh, to give support in tough moments. There's a lot of videos out there where you see that the trainer does things like wake the driver up in the morning, take them to the track, make sure they're eating right, make sure they're physically prepared. And you can always see the trainer next to the driver when they're on the grid ready to go racing. This is really interesting because it's a clear example of instrumental support. All the drivers feel like they need to have somebody there that they can trust, that they have known for a long time to seek support from if it's necessary. On Sunday, you did indeed see a lot of drivers talk to their trainers while the track was being repaired and while they were waiting for the race to be restarted. So having this instrumental support is really important for these athletes. The last strategy these athletes can employ to help them deal with situations such as the one on Sunday is what is called confidence in control. And what that means is that athletes in extreme sports believe that it is them who is in control of the risk. You can see that a lot in sports like mountain climbing where the climbers often say that they have full confidence that they are able to do a certain climb. In the world of F1, you will often see that drivers blame accidents on the actions of other drivers, which in other words is saying, that won't happen to me because I am not going to do that. I am in control of the risk and I will not take that and therefore I will not get into this situation. This can sometimes come across as them being very arrogant or selfish, but I think that's a sign of them using the confidence and control strategy to help deal with the risks that come with F1. It is really remarkable to see how these drivers can be really effective at using these strategies to remain composed and function at their highest level in these circumstances. However, this behavior should not be interpreted as if it does not affect the drivers, as if a crash like that is just something they wipe off and, and don't really care about. It really does. It really does affect them. And after the race, all of them showed that. Everyone asked how, the, how Roman Grosjean was doing. Everyone said, it doesn't matter what the result of the race was today. It matters that he's okay. You can clearly see that it is on their mind and it does get to them. And the things that I just mentioned are just strategies to cope with it in the moment. I think that most of them will probably have a bad night of sleep tonight thinking about the fact that it could just as much have been them in that crash as one of their colleagues. The last story today comes from Hewitt College Football, where Sarah Fuller became the first female to play in a Power 5 conference game. She performed a 30-yard kickoff for the Vanderbilt Commodores to start off the second half of their game against the Missouri Tigers. Fuller is a soccer goalie who plays on the women's soccer team at Vanderbilt and was called up to the football team since they had no kickers left on their team who were fit to play and Fuller was already following the COVID regulations. After the historic game that unfortunately was lost dramatically by the Commodores, 
Fuller said she intends to remain with the football team as long as she is needed and as long as they will allow her to stay with the team. She also mentioned she will work on improving on her kicking by watching NFL kickers that play in a similar way as she does. It is clearly a freak set of circumstances that led to Fuller being the kicker for the Commodores. Not only did COVID have to happen, the team also needed to be out of any other usable kickers and there not being a men's soccer team to find a kicker in. However, I personally really hope she will be able to remain with the team and play in more games. Mostly because it's a great example of what equality in sport could look like and it can be an inspiration to women and girls around the world about what is possible. But also because it provides an opportunity to make an objective evaluation of a female kicker in college football and women and male sports in general. You see, humans are inherently flawed in making decisions because we rely way too much on what we see. We all know the story of Moneyball, which is actually based around the fact that what you see is not a great predictor for what is actually going to happen. And this happens everywhere. Studies with judges show that when a judge doesn't see the defendant, they actually make better decisions on cases than if they do see the defendant. Because seeing the defendant distracts from the facts of the case and makes them make a decision on what they see. When hiring people, not seeing applicants or not even bothering interviewing any of them will actually lead to hiring better employees. Humans make assumptions based on what they see and very often those assumptions are wrong. If we tie that back to Sarah Fuller, I hope that she gets to finish the season as a college kicker. And if she does, I suggest the following. Take her stats, put them in a list with the stats from other male kickers, give them to each coach in the league and ask them to identify the woman in that list. If they cannot, we've proven something about our assumptions in terms of what we see. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Mind of Sport. If you did, please leave a review, a like, comment, and share the episode. And I hope to see you again in the next episode.